Welcome back to the Armchair Trader podcast. It's almost the end of the year. We're looking forward to our turkey and our mince pies. And uh, we thought what, we'd do something a little bit different uh, for this episode. Um, we'd mark the end of the year by getting a couple of other team members to join me in our virtual studio um, just to have a discussion about what's been happening in a very turbulent year for financial markets and uh, on the call today I've got uh, my colleague Michael Morton and our new deputy editor John Foster um, who will both be uh, having a chat with me about what's been going on so welcome welcome to the podcast guys thanks Stuart nice to be here it's gonna be fun I was having a chat actually uh, last night with a hedge fund manager who was saying that, and he's been in the markets for over 20 years, and he was saying that this year has, has been for him, I mean, firstly, one of the most profitable years ever, but also um, certainly one of the most volatile and with some uh, unprecedented price movements. Um, so it has been in many respects quite a, a historic year and certainly more turbulent than perhaps we were expecting as we were coming out of the pandemic, uh, hoping for something a bit quieter. Um, But I thought what we'd do today is just have a a look at some of the big themes um, that investors have been grappling with in 2022 um, and also look at whether we can uh, see those persisting as we go on into the new year. Obviously, really, the the sort of elephant in the room has been inflation and interest rates. Um, We've moved from a fundamentally very low interest rate environment that has been prevailing for the past 14 years or so, even longer. Um, And that's obviously had an impact on the thinking around investors, um, both in the UK and further afield, in terms of, of... sorts of returns they're going to expect uh, going forward. Um, speculation now that the US is, is reaching sort of peak interest rates. Uh, what do you guys think in terms of the, the rate situation and the inflation situation? Do you think, do you think we're near the, near, the, uh, near the summit? Yeah, so here's a little think back of how the year had gone. When we just agreed to do this, I just realized that a lot's happened this year and it's been a sort of exceptional year. You know, when we've had a couple of years where not a lot's gone on, we've just been watching Netflix and, you know, teaching the kids how to play Ludo. Um, but, I mean, when we sort of kicked off this year, you know, I mean, it started off with the warmest day on history for New Year's Day. Um, and at the same time, the inflation story started kicking up. And I think we were already about 5.4% there. And it was just a theme that has gone through the whole whole year. You know, and so as the sort, you know, kind of mercury's gone up, you know, the inflation rate's gone up and, you know, I think it's going to sort of prevail into sort of kind of next year and it's going to be one of those thematics that run through. I think what was quite interesting, um, I just had a look at the uh, the inflation uh, data sort of that's come out of uh, the US um, uh, and uh, it's obviously it's it, there's a feeling that it's hit peak and uh, and that it might be. Um, sort of starting to uh, to, to drop, so it's it, it, I mean it's it, it's expensive for everybody um, with the cost of living at the moment. Um, but uh, you know it's going to continue. Um, you know while while there's while there's sort of all these other events going on that are sort of impacting commodity prices and and everything. The sort of conflict in Ukraine, um, 
it's it's not going to go away anytime soon is it um and, and if i could as well just just sort of jump in Stuart, because obviously uh we you know you say that sort of no one could have predicted um what's been happening um in 2022 but i'd like to go back to the article that you wrote in december 2021 which covered off five key um theories uh, of, of what was going on um in uh, uh what was going to be going on in uh, 2022 and um you've kind of covered it with uh, with 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 the five so i think uh, um on on the podcast page that we put onto the site we should put a link to uh, to to that so that everyone can see um uh, how Stuart Nostradamus Fieldhouse is, uh, <laughs> is 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 working these days and uh, uh someone who should be listened to well, the, the, I mean, the interesting thing I thought with in, inflation, and we've actually just this morning um, seen that the, the, the rate of inflation in the UK has been reported as slowing down slightly. But um, as someone in the FT actually commented in, in that article, um, this has a lot to do with the fact that the oil price has been going down as well. And, and that oil price, we had, the, we had a huge spike in oil and gas prices that had a knock-on effect. Um, on the inflation rate around the world and as we've seen uh you know we we on our on our trading portfolio we put a short trade on on oil on the 18th of november and that's started to really manifest itself as the oil price came off at the start of this month because there were a number of underlying dynamics that i i thought would certainly take the legs out from under oil um and that seems to have fed through. You've seen it in the petrol pumps, but I think we're seeing it starting to feed through into core inflation figures as well. Because inevitably, if the oil if the oil price drops, um, inflation will drop too. I guess one of the problems is central bankers will start to think that that maybe their interest rate hikes are having an impact as well, and it's really hard for them to carve out what those interest rate hikes have done versus what what is actually being caused by the the dropping oil price and other commodity prices it's just johnny again i think energy is going to re- retain a core part of sort you know what goes on next year the issues of of energy security i think when the next um you know cap is going to be announced in in the uk that's going to cause a lot of sleepless nights for people don't think we're quite at the point yet where we have to wrap our granny up in newspaper but um it's it's kind of going to be one of those themes that are going to go through and i think there's opportunity there um but i also think that there's the old saying that it sort of goes up like a rocket and comes down like a feather you know if there's any sort of other macro or geopolitical issues that occur you know we are going to sort you know see that affected again and i think you know we haven't quite seen what the effect of this year's oil price is going to be doing to sort of the food price next year, because already sort of people have been cutting back on on their fertilisers. You know, a large part of you know Europe and sort of North North Africa's you know sort of food supply has been taken out in the Black Sea with Ukraine, and I think that you know when food prices come up next year and we're going into the harvest season for sort of agriculture there are going to be sort of issues and that's where i think these peaks on oil are going to sort of feed through to other parts of the economy you know with the manufacturers sort of fertilizers you know transportation of goods and things like that there's a commitment isn't there globally obviously to uh, to move towards sort of uh, carbon 
neutral um and, and oil obviously isn't a great part of that um but the fact remains that you know global economies are very reliant still on oil so it's still going to be a massive factor um for many years to come i feel that more so than ever before investors are much more focused on those big macro events and that there's only actually about three or four issues that they're they're really paying close attention to and a lot of that risk appetite is being dictated to by those factors we've mentioned inflation and and interest rates already on the podcast um ukraine obviously the ongoing war there is making people people nervous um uh, commodity prices and obviously china too the zero covid policy in china and and economic figures coming out from china um, are causing people to make buy or sell decisions rather than looking at fundamental markets or fundamental stock prices it seems like everyone's moved to a much more macro outlook than possibly you know they used to in more normal times i mean maybe it's just my imagination but is that is that something you'd agree with, John? Yeah, I, I think I do. I was actually, before this, this uh, chat, I was talking to an arms company this morning. Um, they're a UK arms company. Um, and obviously they've had not a bad de- year because of the situation in Ukraine. But one of the things that they were highlighting is if you look at what has happened with a local war between Russia and Ukraine, then you extrapolate it out to the other markets in the world. If you go across to Asia you know, and, you know, the issue with sort of China and Taiwan and Philippines and Thailand and Australia out there, there are such huge trade lanes that run through sort of the Pacific and in that part of the world that only it's going to take a tiny disruption to sort of completely slow down the global economy. And so they're saying that, you know, yeah, we've we've had the warning signs, okay, with Russia and Ukraine this year, geopolitical issues that are going to go on which could be even more significant then being able to predict them accurate obviously <laughs> would be a big help as well um we've seen for example this year uh and i've mentioned already the high oil prices and when we were doing our share screens and looking at different sectors and looking at different um different companies it was remarkable how many well, in the first half of the year, how many commodities-focused companies were coming up on the on the radar? Um, that you know, guys like Glencore were flagged as doing very well. We've been in Glencore for a while. Glencore's done really well for us. Um, but then, in the middle of the year, we started to see a lot of energy companies, both small cap and and larger ones, coming up on the screens as well. And they were telling us energy was a good place to be energy profits were going to be big so all of a sudden it seemed like every other stock pick we were we were flagging up was a was a oil company or a gas company and then they started making huge profits as well and and then obviously the government started talking about windfall taxes and things like that but but it was interesting how if you were looking at stocks uk stocks or global stocks in the middle of the year there was such um the metrics were pointing at a real focal point where you know it was only a couple of sectors seemed to be doing really well. Um, oil and gas was one, and strangely, healthcare was another one. The healthcare companies, private healthcare stocks, or stocks that were supporting the private healthcare business, were just printing money. It seemed over the summer. I mean, the, the metrics for those guys were fantastic, but it did feel like 
if you're a stock investor, that that, that you were really being channeled into a very small number of, of sectors. You know, the, the, with, the, with the economic situation uh, as it's been, value investors, growth investors, they've all struggled. You know, the, uh, all stocks pretty much have struggled, as, as you say, um, apart from sort of these, these, these key, um, key sectors. Those, those um, fundamentals now are becoming quite interesting. So if you are a value investor, then uh, it's, it's getting to a point where, you know, you've got an opportunity to buy stocks at a much cheaper rate. You've got to be brave, obviously, and you've got to be able to sort of you know, look at this on the longer term. But there's an opportunity to, to get these stocks um, cheaper than you ordinarily would with the long-term view. So it, it does create opportunities. Obviously, with these, these sectors that are doing well mean that um, you, know, you, you, can, you can still sort of potentially profit from you know, the situation as it is. Personally, for me, um, I think with defensive stocks and, 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 uh, and the like, it's, it's, there's, there's a moral conversation to, to be had there internally, I guess. Um, some will be happy to, uh, um, to, to, to invest money in the, um, uh, the defence sector. Some maybe not. In your own sort of portfolio, you are making those kind of decisions based on rationality, but also, you know, on, on your own philosophy and your own view of life and what world you want to live in. We've had sort of a, a number of years where it's all been about exciting, shiny things. And it's a bit like a cat sort of chasing a torch on the ground with investors. What I think is going to happen in the next couple of years is it's going to go really boring and it's going to be the boring stocks that people are going to love. And, you know, it comes down to a case, in my view, this is my view completely, and I'm not a portfolio manager and I'm, I'm, I'm not a fund manager, but it comes down to sort of needs v wants. I mean, Meta isn't going to sort of keep you warm in the winter and Twitter's not going to feed you and Netflix isn't going to empty your bins. But, you know, you're looking, like you said, Stuart, about healthcare companies and yeah, biotech is exciting. We, we've chatted to a couple of sort of guys about biotech over the last couple of months, and it is an exciting growth area. But it's, you know, it peaked and then sort of fell off a cliff at the beginning of the year when we all thought COVID had gone away. Um, but I think when you're looking at sort of sectors, which are speculative like that, you know, you are going back to the old adage of sort of selling picks and shovels. And so in a healthcare sort of sector you're looking at people like sort of thermo fisher in the u.s and they simply make pipettes and you know kind of petri dishes and equipment and for the the biotech industry but they're the ones that will be able to sort of pick up on the biotech industry sort of wave and it's the same with you know kind of uh linda which is over in the, the u.s as well and they are really boring and they've been a boring company for many a year great for dividends you know, they, they keep on, you know, kind of performing. And all they do is they just produce gas. And one of their main products is hydrogen. And so people are going to be sort of going, well, we need hydrogen. And Linda are going to go, well, you know, we, we we can give you that, you know. And then it's selling sugar and coffee and snacks and things like that, like performance food or or packaging. And it's those boring stocks that reflect the the needs of sort of, you know, kind of keeping you warm, keeping a roof over your head and keeping sort of, you know, kind of, you know, uh, your belly full that I think are going to be the ones that will see you through the recession. I know it's been said many times before, but it's starting to sort of show through a lot. And again, with the sort of defense stocks, you know, again, there are lots of sort of moral implications to it, but this 
the CEO that I, I was talking to is very adamant that, you know, it's it's not about really sort of kind of building weapons that will sort of, you know, kind of kill lots of people. It's about, sort of, you know, defending your borders and defending your way of life and defending sort of democracy and sort of the way that, that you are. And so he's not going to sell to, or he says he's not going to sell to, you know, various companies with sort of, that are not within the sort of democratic framework. But, you know, he's saying it's it's a part of what we do. It's needs, not wants. And that seems like a good theme for, uh, for, for 2023. I, I had a conversation with a, with a Swiss wealth manager a few weeks back. He, he's responsible for something like over a billion Swiss francs of private client assets. And uh, he said, and he advises all his high net worth clients on a, on a case by case basis. So he has to respond to their own level of confidence in the equity market. And he said that the bulk of them, in fact, almost all of them are in cash um, and um, sort of short term deposits. And that right now they're all sitting on their hands um, waiting to see what happens next. Um, and that it's even difficult for them to uh, buy Nestle shares, for example. <laughs> and, and do you think, do you think that applies across the board with with most private investors? That the, the bulk of private investors are sitting there waiting for for something to turn, and then they're all going to start piling in. And and as as you say, does this mean that they're missing out on some incredible bargains in the market right now because there are so many companies trading at levels they simply shouldn't be? I think that's a really good point. I, I think people are. I, I I totally agree with you. I I don't understand. Uh, why you would well i can understand why you would not want to be in the market right now um but picking the top and the bottom of any market is incredibly difficult For, from my point of view i'm much more comfortable being in the market but i've got a sort of much more longer term outlook on uh, on 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 my the, the funds and the and the shares that i hold um so a lot of my stuff at the moment is uh, dividend paying and it means that even though sort of prices are depressed there are dividends um, that I'm reinvesting, um, so I'm building up the the holding of of, of shares at, at a lower price, uh, theoretically from uh, um, from where uh, where they were. So that the idea uh, of that is that um, as as prices do begin to uh, increase again, um, and everybody sort of feels more confident with uh, with the economy and uh, uh, and life in general, um, then that's the point where um, I've reduced my um, cost weighted average uh, of each share and uh, and hopefully see some of the, uh, I was going to say the dividends of that, um, uh, the fruits of that. I've got a fund in China, which um, I, I should sort of disclose, Stuart said, don't do um, at the point where I bought them. Um, and that's obviously uh, not doing particularly well at the moment, but it's a high dividend yield. Um, so I'm, I'm getting lots of, uh, lots of, uh, shares being uh, reinvested, um, you know, for the point where the Chinese economy will come back um, at some point, and uh, uh, and as we see that, that it's it you it's very hard to pick the bottom um, as a private investor, um, probably even as a um, as a professional investor. Um, so so to be in the market, um, if you have a long term view, I think is 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 quite important. Yeah, Michael, it's John again. I, I completely agree with you. I think that, um, you know, you, you have to be in the market, but 
not expecting, you know, wonderful things in terms of sort of capital returns. I think, um, you know, I look at sort of kind of shares I've got, and they are a, a picture of red, you know, uh, which at, at first look, you kind of go, well, you know, that's not great. I bought at X, and now they're Y, but that's the whole market. Um, but what I have got is I've followed the themes that I believe are going to be sort of themes for the future, and they're they're not iPhone and things like that. They're based upon basic needs, you know, energy, housing, food, agriculture, and just like you, they are dividend producing. And I think as we go into what um, I think the Bank of England was advertising quite um, quite encouragingly earlier this year that the longest period of recession that we will ever sort of go into um i think um you know it's uh it's a case where you've got to find alternative sources of income you can try and work 27 hours a day but that's probably not going to work so you've got to sort of find other ways of sort you know kind of supplementing your personal and your household income you know and i think there are risks in the stock market but i think like you it's better to be invested and know that that brighter times are coming uh, then not be invested and be sort of entering the market when it's on that surge speaking of longer term investment themes and brighter times ahead i mean one of the areas that people continue to get excited about is the whole transition to new energy sources. We've seen a number of uh, companies come and go on the London market, which are the one minute there, the darlings um, of the market, mentioning no names, ITM power. And then the next minute, (laughs) next minute, they're they're down. (laughs) And and it's, it's tough when you're a private investor to look at all these different stocks and try and work out which are going to be the winners and how long you have to stay in in them as well because a lot of them are working on new technologies um or or they have like guys like orsted having their hand forced by the the danish government um to to go back to some um fossil based energy sources as well what do you guys think about that? Is it is it something where people can expect to make money in the near term, or is this more a case? And this is my own personal view, and feel free to disagree with me. But is it more a case of having them in your sort of long term portfolio, where you just buy that company and you then sit on it for the next three to five years and and wait and see what happens? Because inevitably, we are going to see this transition, and some of these guys are going to start making money, but not to expect them to do it, say in a twelve month time frame. I think you're right. I think there's, you know, as we sort of talked about earlier, there's there's still this uh, need for oil. There's still this reliance on 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 oil um, and gas, and um, you know, although we're hearing good things about you know the sort of the new energy infrastructure, um, it doesn't seem to be the urgency. Um, I think ITM Power, you know, as 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 the example. Um, was was of interest over the the course of um uh corona, yeah, the lockdowns and and coronavirus um and we saw see the share price was was doing some great things i think uh, it it came around the time of uh one of the cop was it cop 26 at the time um and uh it was a theme you know it's it's 
quite exciting. This is this is where we're heading towards. And, and I think sort of, you know, as someone looking to the future, as as, as John was saying, um, it's really important to um, uh, you know to 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 have some kind of um, uh, set some some kind of you know hand uh, in 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 the game. So as a romantic, you know, I, I really like to see these sorts of companies doing well. I think they have to do well for, for us as a, um, you know, as a, as a species almost, and, and you know, for, to, to, to help the planet. Um, as you say, they, they, they're not going to yield an awful lot in the next 12 months. It's, it's, it's going to be one of those stocks and, 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 and a sector that's, that's going to sort of gain more prominence as it becomes more and more important, sadly. Um, and, and, and I, I feel that like John was saying, you, you, you know, you need to sort of be in the game on these, um, and, and, and hopefully they'll come good. And, and, and that should be a good sign for us all for humanity, um, as well as for a portfolio. Renewable energy is, is kind of a, a, a passion for me. You know, I'm hopelessly, hopelessly, so, you know, kind of optimistic about the, the future and, so, you know, this new green um, revolution, you know, and the transition from, so, you know, kind of the way that we, we have done life in the sort of 19th to 20th century to what we're going to do in future. And I think technology, you know, is, is starting to catch up and, you know, we're, we're as you mentioned, Michael, as species start to realise that, you know, we don't just live in our silos and, what we do in in Britain can affect people in sort of Chad or or Philippines or places like that. Um, I think one of the issues is the <clears throat> flip flopping of of government and um, you know international bodies and you know the the regulation and the the the, the, the COP process is is really nice if you're a journalist to talk about it because you can gossip about so you know what they had for lunch and you know who's there and whatever and it's turned into a bit of a sort of green oscars but it's it's really so you know kind of you know more of you know kind of window dressing but then you look at so you know kind of the things that we're trying to do in in the uk and you know as we sort of freeze in sub-zero temperatures through this winter and we do have to sort of eventually wrap our grand grandparents up in, you know, the leftovers from Christmas. You know, um, we we have to sort of look at becoming more energy independent. And um, yeah, we've opened up a sort of new coal mine. You know, uh, which uh, is it was a very brave move by by sort you know kind of uh, the government. And you know, we are talking about sort of a nuclear. Um, but then again, there's the sort of whole security issue of that. But if you, you look at our energy sector in the UK, you know, we are mostly sort of owned, you know, in terms of sort of the retail side by foreign companies, you know, who may or may not have other interests at heart, you know. Um, so right now, France is going through sort of its issues with its own nuclear fleet, and it's probably going to start importing energy from the UK at the same time that we're needing energy. But it's going to go through, so you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of French-owned companies which are owned by the French government. Whereas, you know, our, our approach here is just standing back. I think with with communities, they are going to sort of start building their own sort of systems and their own sort of solutions to this. You know, I think if 
in the UK legislation goes through, you know, about, so, you know, kind of deregulating that industry, you'll see a lot of sort of smaller companies who may or may not use the capital markets to sort of raise finance, you know, building sort of, you know, local um, power generation distribution uh, networks. And I think also sort of the technologies that are sort of coming on stream, I think some of them are going to be sort of um, smoke and mirrors and a long way away. But there are other ones that I think are, are sort of, you know, kind of things that can really, really change society. You know, and uh, um, you look at sort of kind of when, you know, the UK and Europe and America originally industrialized in that industrial revolution. There's not that many sort of kind of companies that were around then that changed the world that are around now. And I think, you know, you are going to have sort of people who are going to sort of forge the way. And then the likes of sort of BP and Shell go, gosh, that's a good idea. We'll buy you and we'll start doing that as well. You know, um, and I think that, that, you know, there is going to be that transition. But it's it's um, it's a thing that I think is going to have to be sort of supported by the government, but also supported by the investment community. And another another big theme I wanted to look at this year has been the the IPO market. Um, it's something that we, we try to keep on top of because I know a lot of investors are quite excited about the opportunities that new listings um, can provide. Um, and there, usually there are some pretty high profile IPOs in the grey market, um, even for retail investors. In fact, retail participation in I- IPOs has been increasing year on year which is great to see um but this year not as many have been coming through on the uk market um we've seen some massive ones um happening in for example the middle eastern market i know india is a rule unto itself but the the indian ipo market is is absolutely red hot at the moment um what do you th- what do you guys think about the IPO market at the moment? Um, and, and going forward into next year, do you think that we'll see more more big names coming through to tap the market, or is it going to be more a case of just a few smaller minnows? Uh, it, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? As you say, it's been a lot lot quieter on the IPO front. I think um, I, I think the state of the markets has probably been a, a factor in in that. Um, I wanted to throw a question out there as well. Um, obviously, since Brexit, um, there's been a lot of talk of um, uh, the UK markets not being sort of, you know, the the, the central hub of uh, of Europe anymore. And I think um, we wrote a piece a little while ago about how uh, the French exchange has uh, overtook um, uh, the London Stock Exchange for uh, for, for a while uh, in terms of market cap. Um so uh i mean is, is is that a trend is that a theme is is uh is the uk not seen as 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 quite as uh important and as exciting um a market for companies to to ipo into perhaps it's been a difficult market this year i mean i think over in europe you have seen sort of some some big household names you know kind of coming to market i mean like we recently sort of uh, wrote about a uh pharmaceutical fund manager or a biotech fund manager who is going through the IPO process and just had to sort of hold hold that up a bit because of the market you know I mean their uh, assertion is that a good idea is a good idea no matter what time the sort you know uh, uh, timing of the market and you can't time the market I think to your point sort of Michael um, 
the French stock market, you know, has had, has grown. And I think that is because France is a beautiful country and, you know, they like their luxury goods there. And so, you know, lots of French people sort of buying perfumes for their sort of uh, other halves or other halves, halves or whatever, you know, uh, that's, that's helped them. And, uh, you know, we all like a pair of high heels, don't we? Um, but fundamentally, I think that um, in many ways, uh, London is a global market. It really is. It, it's the market that, you know, kind of Africa and Asia and, you know, the Middle East look to. It's like, you know, you're going to see Central Asia, you know, and the, 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 the Central Asian companies looking to that because it is an international market. I think Brexit has affected that to some extent. But I still think sort of London, you know, is seen as the blue ribboned in many ways uh, for so, you know stock exchanges, and you know America is is really expensive to list on as well. So you know if you are going to be so, you know kind of an emerging emerging market mining company or a steel mill, you know you'll do your local listing to start off with, you know, but that will hoover up a lot of capital initially. But then you'd be looking and you go, is it really worth me going to, you know, NASDAQ or going to, you know, you know, the US markets to sort of list with the issues that you've got with the ability to sort of invest in those markets and the sort, you know, the costs of it or London, where I know you're going to get capital from all over the world coming. I think that London, yeah, it's taken a hit and it'll take another hit next year. I think as as a as an entity, London is still going to be strong and I feel confident about, you know, kind of, uh, you know, how the the LSE will will perform in the next couple of years. I'm going to be Mr. Controversy here. <laughs> but um, I, be, I mean, obviously, last couple of years, we've been we've been writing a lot about both UK and overseas stocks and talking to CEOs and um, talking to companies that have multiple listings, I mean, listings in Canada, listings in London, listings in, in um, continental Europe on Euronext, um, Frankfurt Stock Exchange, and I've talked. I've spoken off the record to a lot of uh, CEOs about their plans and their ambitions for their businesses. And one of the things, and this is just my own impression from those discussions, but one of the things that's really working against London at the moment is just the sheer expense that's involved in getting some small caps onto the market at the moment. And when you drill into those expenses. Um, there just seems to be a lot of different companies involved in the listing process, all of which are charging enormous fees, sort of fees which if you're a big company, you know, if it's a, if it's a massive multi-billion pound blue chip listing, you're going to be able to take those no problem at all. But a lot of smaller companies who've looked at the London market are currently shying away because there's a lot of red tape and there's a lot of upfront expenses and and they are not going to list in London as long as that remains like that. There seems to be I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to use the word gravy train, but there does seem to be a gravy train with a lot of companies involved um in an IPO that are charging a lot of money for what's the word I'm looking for? Not a huge amount of value. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think I think there's you know as with the 1980s I think there's a need for some serious reform within the 
the UK financial markets. It, I don't think it's a difficult thing to do. I think there's probably a lot of vested interest that will push back on it. But I think if the government really wants to breathe some more life into the into the London market, then they need to they need to really address this because as things are set up at the moment, um, it just seems it just seems crazy. You know, it's a much more we're in a much more competitive environment now than we used to be. Um, you already mentioned France, but that's not the only market which um, a company can look at for a listing. I think the the markets in the Middle East are just doing extremely well at the moment. And at the moment, they're just still listing regional businesses or companies which have their sort of center of gravity there. But the time's going to come when someone's going to look at an IPO in the Middle East over London because they can tap a huge amount of capital that's sitting down there in the Gulf states. Uh, so, you know, I, I always thought something like the AIM market, for example, was there to actually facilitate growth companies and help them to list access capital and, and progress on towards the main ball of the London Stock Exchange. Um, but the more you look into it, it doesn't seem like that at all. It seems I mean, the number of CEOs who've personally complained to me in the last 12 months about how expensive it is to list on AIM is absolutely staggering. Um, they won't say that in public, but <laughs> I'm saying it now just just uh, to represent that point of view to the wider audience. But uh, that's certainly that's certainly some that's certainly been my big takeaway from the last couple of years um, you know, covering the IPO market. And if if investors and politicians want to see a you know a new stream of IPOs coming into London, then then I think there's going to need to be some some work done on on the actual. Um, listing process um, that has also been why I think cash shells for example have been a, an area of interest because you know, they have represented a, a, a cheaper way for uh, private companies to get onto the market via a um, reverse takeover but again the rules have now changed to make those you know, future cash shell deals seem to me to be now more expensive but again it, it it almost seems to be discouraging ipos well well first up um stuart i'd like to apologize to you and all our listeners for my absolute boosterism you know i do like sort of a nice dose or a cup of cold reality as to where we are um i do take your point okay and knowing the process reasonably well and knowing a number of people who've been through the process both as a cash shell and uh, also, so, you know, as a listing on AIM or listing on the main market, there are um, a staggering amount of hurdles, you know, that you have to sort of jump over. And um, in some cases, and I don't really want to criticise here, um, it seems that the, the regulators and, you know, other sort of, you know, kind of uh, bodies that are supposed to be helping you get onto the market, you know, aren't really sort of pushing it as hard as they could do. And it's kind of left a little bit, so, you know, kind of your own devices and guesswork in some ways. Um, I think it is a very expensive process. Um, and that's why I think, so, you know, kind of the, the SPAC market and, so, you know, kind of um, cash shells can sort of try and close that loop a little bit for sort of people looking to, to invest. Um, but I do go back to my point about the liquidity and the sort of global um, reputation of sort of London. I mean, like, you know, I know the 
DFX and the Middle Eastern markets really well because I spent a number of years out there. I know, you know, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, you know, and, and the Nairobi Stock Exchange. And there are large chunks and pools of capital out there, undoubtedly. Um, but it is also very, very difficult to sort of list on those markets. It's also, you know, kind of a case where those markets, are, for, for no reason that they should be, but are kind of a little bit scorned by international investors. And they are sort of dominated by local players. I know uh, a mining company which tried to sort of kind of uh, list um, both in, in the UK and in, so, you know, kind of emerging markets. And they found that the liquidity was too difficult for them. The regulations were too difficult for them. You know, the type of investors that they were sort of dealing with were not the type of investors they wanted to deal with. Um, and they pulled a listing. And I know at least and this is going back a couple of years, at least four, five or six other companies, okay, who were looking at, you know, kind of the Middle Eastern Stock Exchange, looking at the African Stock Exchange as a dual listing or a triple listing, okay, option. And when they sort of looked at, well, do we do, do AIM or even Aquis, you know, or do we sort of go down to, you know, kind of, you know, the, the, the emerging markets, it came to the point where it made more financial sense and more regulatory sense and, put them in a better shop window than invest in those markets. That's not to say that, you know, kind of London can rest on its laurels because everybody's after after its crown, as we've seen over the last couple of months. But again, not not wanting to be booster-ish. Okay, I think that there that London does have a key future. I'm aware of, as as Michael likes to say, I'm conscious of time. So uh, <laughs> I do. <laughs> I just want Thanks, to. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the news, as we're recording this this week, um, Sam Bankman-Fried has been arrested and facing potential um, criminal trial following the collapse of FTX. Um, uh, other exchanges in the crypto space are under a lot of pressure with a lot of investors possibly sensibly taking their money off exchange the as as we went into this year it was crypto was still as an asset class still riding high um talking to investors they seem to be split between those who who still think it has a future and those who wouldn't touch it with a barge pole at the moment, um, most coins have been heavily sold down, and and if you are still a fan of crypto, then one could probably argue that we're, if anything, we're now trading at entry point levels. Um, the whole FTX saga, though, has shone a light on the on the market, and and again, going back to my my risks article from this time last year, I thought that inevitably it was going to have to be regulated at some level because it just couldn't keep going as it was in this sort of wild west scenario where a couple of 20 somethings in the bahamas can be controlling you know one of the largest exchanges in the market while they still plug their own hedge fund into that exchange um and shuffle money back and forth between them i mean it just in a responsible financial market can't evolve that way the big question here is is the crypto market bigger than FTX and can crypto survive and rally out of what they're calling the crypto winter at the moment? 
what do you guys what do you guys think about that? Do you think do you think this is doom of crypto or or do you think do you think it will come back bigger and better? I will defer to your greater knowledge, Michael and Stuart, okay, um, with regard to crypto. However, all I would add at the moment is that I am rubbing linseed oil into my barge pole as we speak. <laughs> my my knowledge isn't great with uh with with crypto i think we've discussed this on uh, on previous podcasts um but uh just to highlight the point um i actually uh um bought some shares in a a small cap um a couple of years ago uh as as a bit of a hedge uh for cryptocurrencies um and uh, i won't mention the name of the company um at, at this stage but uh, uh su- suffice to say that um the value of the uh, company uh, now, the the value of the shares that I own, because uh, it was only a small amount that I uh, that, that I put in as a as a hedge, the value is actually less than the cost it would take to trade out of those shares uh, in order to, uh, to 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 realize anything. So, um, my my idea was was uh, if 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 uh, it was going to go to the moon, I think there were at the time um, times last year there were sort of uh, articles that we wrote about sort of you know, experts talking about two hundred thousand uh, dollars for for Bitcoin. I think we were at sixty thousand at the time. So the idea was literally just a, a small hedge. Um, if if uh, cryptos, if Bitcoin was going to go that way, then uh, great, happy days. There was uh, there, there was a bit of exposure in my portfolio. Um, obviously, that's not happened, and um, I haven't even got any beer money to uh, to, to to spend. I think what you you make is a very valid point there, Michael. But I think it also extrapolates to to the wider market. I mean, in my view, and again, I'm I'm like you. I just don't understand the market. I think I'm in the sort of, you know kind of a majority because most people don't. It's very hard to sort of, you know kind of tell what direction a coin is going because it's based, in my opinion, purely on speculation. You know, you your your value of your coin is as much as somebody would pay for it because there are no assets back in it there's no no activity apart from you know a computer running code and i mean i i understand the the philosophy of you know kind of blockchain and i think it's got amazing applications in in other other parts of you know kind of the the uh, industrial spectrum i think you know blockchain in in sort of uh, mining for example you could sort of develop a a coin based on the gold or the coal you leave in the ground because it's got an asset behind it. Um, but again, it's something that I don't understand. And the thing is that with, you know, the the issue we've seen with sort of Sam Bankman-Fried, you know, he, he his clients are probably the same as you, okay, in that they thought it's a great idea. You know, what can go wrong? Who would have thought it would go down? Um, but um, I guess they didn't sort of fully understand it and possibly they might be more rich and powerful than you sort of michael yeah so that that might be why they're sort of chasing him hard very true indeed uh i mean my personal and and this is obviously we're near the end of the podcast so there's only so much one can say but uh i think the ftx explosion debacle meltdown um has been a salutary lesson for a lot of investors because um, if you look at the way that the crypto market has worked, 
the, the market has functioned on the basis of a lot of investors keeping their assets on the, on the actual exchange and not storing them in um, cold cold wallets or, or with independent custodians. Now, that market does have that facility. It is possible to store your assets off exchange or with a fully regulated third-party custodian. I think the staggering thing for me has just been the sheer number of what I would call institutional professional investors. We're not even talking about private investors here who were routinely leaving large chunks of money on an exchange as their counterparty. And when you actually went and looked at that exchange, and there were a number of articles about FTX saying, well, there's no transparency. We don't know where their money is. We don't know the banks that they will name are not necessarily tier one regulated banks. I mean, there were all sorts of red flags all over it right from the beginning. And what surprises me from just a purely counterparty risk basis is just the sheer number of extremely experienced investors who were just happy with that situation, even fully in the knowledge that FTX wasn't being regulated by the SEC. and therefore the whole thing was one big gray zone luckily for a lot of uh institutional investors um managing other people's money um their risk controls meant that they couldn't even get into the crypto market because things like ftx just set off alarm bells for them and they were they were pushing for more regulation because they wanted to invest in crypto but they couldn't they weren't allowed to um, because you know, a, a, a opaque counterparty in the Bahamas was not going to pass muster. So I think there have been some important lessons learned. Um, I don't think it's the death of crypto. I think it's it's here to stay. Um, I think it's going to be an emerging asset class. I think there's a lot of rubbish out there. I think the staggering number of coins that have been issued by various people in the course of this year. Um, demonstrates just how easy it is for someone to raise raise money with a coin and, and tap into that market and that people will still buy this stuff. But um, I think from the from going forward, I think in, you know anyone who's serious about crypto needs to look very closely at which coins you're buying and where you're keeping them. When I've looked at some of the really, really popular go-to-the-moon coins in the past, um, you'll, you'll find very little information about who's who's issued them i mean literally you can't see frequently the individual people who are behind the the coin where they're based if there's a limited company they don't issue press releases they don't issue annual reports none of the checks and balances that exist say for a, even the most speculative share will exist for one of these coins just won't so i think People need to do their homework on coins just as they have to on anything else. At the end of the day, it's another investment. And and I think one of the crazy things has been how even, again, mentioning no names, SoftBank seemed to ditch routine due diligence and write multi-million pound checks for things, which if it was something else like a private company or a, a real estate project, they simply wouldn't do. It, it just it just staggers me how, how that has happened. But I think it's an important lesson. It's been an expensive lesson. And I think we will see the market changing as a result. But I think the demand is still there for digital assets. I don't think they're going to go away.
and it's certainly you know something we will continue to cover on the armchair trader next year um that's all i think we're almost at the end of our our podcast today um i think um i think we might just close with a a, a very brief look to the year ahead um we will be publishing shortly some more um forward looking articles on the site as we move into the christmas period but um um for myself um looking forward um to next year um i think there's going to be a number of interesting moves in the market next year um i'm hoping that it won't be quite the white knuckle ride that 2022 has been um i think we're beginning to see some interesting movement in in precious metals and uh i'm not saying that this that next year will be the precious metals bull market to end all bull markets but um certainly some of the early intel we're getting seems to show that that some investors are getting more bullish particularly on the silver market um but i will be going into that in more depth in a future article on the armchair trader website so uh you can uh, come online and and check that out in the next couple of couple of weeks um uh but uh michael and john just to close off um and any views you have on on potentially interesting markets in 2023? Well, I was I was just going to jump on the back of what you said there about precious metals because we seem to have been talking about um, gold um, as an inflation hedge um, and, uh, and 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 in difficult times, um, and and I think we've we've all been expecting to see more uh, from 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 gold, gold over that period. So I I, I don't know what's obviously going to happen. Um, you know, sil- silver's interesting. There's there's certainly a, a lot of interest in in that at the moment, and I know there's 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 a correlation um, in in the price of of gold and the price of silver. Um, so so we shall see. But it 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 just makes sense. Uh, I mean, I'm a bit of a gold bug, I guess. Anyway, um, uh, you know, very bullish on that. But um, uh, we shall see. I guess um, uh, the key thing is, as we've sort of spoken about um uh, across the podcast is you you've, you've got to be into uh you know uh you've got to have exposure to um you know have any any benefit to that so uh, um that's that's up to the, i guess the individual uh, investor i think the um some of the themes that we we've seen this year are going to continue to play out uh, as we discussed earlier um and with me it's it's, it's again a case of looking to needs against wants and i think that kind of soft commodities and food are going to be areas which which will sort of you know be important next year and those producers and the people who are supplying the machinery and equipment to them are going to be very very interesting areas well thank you very much indeed guys for coming on the podcast i hope we can make this a more regular thing in in the new year and uh, all that remains is for us to collectively wish our our readers and our listeners across the world a um a merry festive season and a happy new year and we'll hope to catch up with you in 2023 that's a wrap you've been listening to the armchair trader podcast make sure you visit our website www.thearmchairtrader.com for your daily dose of financial markets news and sign up to our free newsletter there